Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tinnitus Talk, a podcast sponsored by Tinnitus Hub. My name is Sean, also known as Jack Straw, and today I'm going to be introducing you to this podcast. So to jump right into it, I'm going to talk to you about what you can expect from it. So starting off, we're going to be having our main focus be interviews. We're going to be interviewing professionals such as doctors, researchers, PhDs, audiologists, people with tinnitus, pharmaceutical reps. You guys get the idea. It's mainly going to be people that we think are interesting and will provide us as a community information that's more cutting edge and at the front lines of tinnitus, uh, which will be fantastic to hear. Um, Another important part of the podcast is going to be updates, keeping everyone up to date on research treatments and alternative treatments, making sure that everyone's getting their most recent news as to what's going on in those various fields. Um, Another important aspect of it is fundraising. Uh, You know, a lot of us have to give our own money into these fundraisers to promote this research and and to help uh, various people push forward tinnitus into the forefront. And that falls a lot on, on a lot of our shoulders. So we are going to be discussing various fundraisers that are going on, things that you should know about in that sense. Another important aspect is going to be helping everyone who's listening, you know, kind of spread awareness a little more. You know, it's not very helpful when we're all sitting on our butts not really doing much about tinnitus besides complaining we really have to get out there and do something if you want to make a difference so we're going to be trying to find ways for everyone to on an individual group and community level to try and raise awareness and push forward and put tinnitus more out there into the community and making sure everyone knows about it Uh, Besides that, we're also going to be having some success stories taken from the forum as well, but not just from the forum. Maybe we'll get some real-life interviews that we can use as success stories because we feel that it's important for people to hear those. Um, You know, there's a lot of doom and gloom that goes on, but, you know, success is something that does happen, and people do achieve it. Uh, They do learn to live with their tinnitus in a way um, that they can coexist, and we think that it's important for everyone to hear those types of stories. And besides that, we're going to have some type of like administrative uh, things going on where, you know, Marku or Hazel can come on here and they can discuss various things regarding Tinnitus Hub or Tinnitus Talk Forum, just keeping everyone up to date as to anything that could be happening or looking out for something that we may need your help with or something like that, uh, just to kind of bring the community together and just have a community talk type thing. Um, And hopefully we're also going to be having a Tinnitus uh, talk podcast forum on the tonight's talk website as well, where we can have questions come in from you guys. We can get feedback from you guys. You can request future topics, anything like that. We'd love to hear from you guys in a sense in that part of the forum as well to try and make this podcast as best as we can make it. And I know the last thing you guys are thinking, you know, how often is this podcast going to be coming out? Um, you know, we're going to try and shoot for once a month. You know, you might get more than you might get it more than once a month. Uh, you might have to extend the deadline a little longer than once a month sometimes. But we're going to shoot for once a month. You know, I want everyone to keep in mind that, you know, this podcast and all the work that happens with Tinnitus Hub and Tinnitus Talk Forum and everything, it's all volunteer work. You know, we're all dedicating our own time, going out of our way, doing this type of stuff. Um, And, you know, we're just humans. We have uh, real life stuff going on as well. You know, we're not professionals. So. Um, you know, just keep that in mind that we are working as hard as we can. Um, and, but we might need some, uh, some extension (laughs) on on our deadlines every now and then just because, uh, you know, real life does get in the way. Uh, we do have jobs and, and personal lives outside of our volunteer work we do. 
But anyway, so uh, I think that wraps it up besides, oh, just one quick disclaimer I just want to give everyone is that, you know, anything that we talk about on the podcast going forward, anything that the guests say that we have on, anything in general that happens on this podcast is not medical advice. We are not doctors. We cannot give you medical advice regarding anything regarding tinnitus or any medical illnesses you have or anything like that. So if you want medical advice, please go to a medical professional because we cannot help you here. We will not be giving medical advice at all. So that sounds about it. Uh, We do have a great interview for you today. It's from Dr. Rosschecker. Hazel got a chance to speak with him and had a fantastic interview. Uh, They covered a wide range of topics. You guys put in those questions on the forum and, you know, we compiled the list and we talked with Dr. Rosschecker and and, um, the interview came out fantastic. It's it's very interesting. I highly recommend everybody to please, please check it out. Um, You will have a fantastic time listening to it. Uh, It is very engaging and it was very interesting. Um, But I will give you a slight uh, introduction to him before that begins. But I just want to thank everyone for listening uh, right now, and we're going to hop right into this uh, pre-interview. All right, everyone. So let's talk about Dr. Roschecker real quickly before we jump into this interview. He's basically been doing tinnitus research for a very long time. He's currently at Georgetown University. He's done various studies over the years, worked with various uh, different researchers in regards to tinnitus, and he basically is probably one of the smartest people when it comes to tinnitus. Um, He has a great TED Talk on YouTube called Tinnitus Ringing in the Brain. Just YouTube that, Tinnitus Ringing in the Brain, and it should come up on there. It's, uh, it's I think it's about like 15 or so minutes. It's uh, very short, but it's very informative. It's packed full of very interesting information regarding tinnitus. I highly recommend everyone, please go watch that either before you listen to the full interview or afterward. It's very interesting and it's very informative. Please go listen to that. Um, Also, Dr. Ross Checker currently has a fundraiser going on for his research. I highly implore everyone to please go to the Georgetown University website or go to the Tinnitus Talk website and you can find the link to his uh, fundraising page. And please, please, please donate uh, to his fundraiser because tinnitus research is very important and that is exactly what he is doing. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Ross Checker and Hazel. Welcome everyone to Tinnitus Talk, a podcast on all things tinnitus. My name is Hazel. I have tinnitus myself and I work as a volunteer for Tinnitus Hub who are the organizers of this podcast and amongst others also run the Tinnitus Talk online support forum. I am very honored to be here today with Professor Joseph Rauschecker. He is one of the most preeminent researchers on tinnitus. He's with the Department of Neuroscience at the Georgetown Institute for Cognitive and Computational Sciences. Uh, welcome, Dr. Rauschecker. Uh, actually, I've been told I can call you Joseph, so I will do so. <laughs> Hi, Hazel. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, of course you can call me Joseph. Thank you. Um, we're so happy to have you join us today and taking some time out of your, no doubt, very busy schedule to uh, engage with the tinnitus patient community. No, I, I'm, it's a pleasure to be there and uh, look forward to your questions. I've seen some of the prior uh, broadcasts and um, 
seems that you're a very knowledgeable community and that um, uh, some of the questions might be quite tricky for me to answer, but I'll do my best. <laughs> okay, we'll try not to make it too hard on you. Um, so my first question actually would be, uh, do you have tinnitus yourself? Yes, I do. Um, mm. I, I um, started having it maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, started out with uh, just occasional bouts of, of tinnitus. I remember, and I should clarify, I, I noticed that you're pronouncing it tinnitus. I yes. usually say tinnitus, and I've checked with the highest authorities in the field, among others, uh, Dr. James Snow, who was formerly director of NIDCD and then ran one of the Tinnitus Foundations, the Tinnitus Research Consortium. He said absolutely both pronunciations are fine. So I will know. probably stick to my tinnitus and you can stick to your tinnitus. That's Indeed. just fine like this. So uh, I had, um, I remember even a, a weekend, I uh, can't remember the name, it was probably some, uh, the, the year, it was probably sometime in the late, or mid to late 90s when I first got tinnitus. And it was a very disturbing experience. It was not just one of the sort of second long tinnitus occurrences that everybody has once in a while. It was, uh, you know, suddenly um, I seemed to have lost hearing a little bit. And then uh, the whole weekend uh, I had this buzzing sound. So I called my colleague here at Georgetown, the chair of the otolaryngology department, and said, what's going on? And she, he said, well, you know, don't worry. It might just go away. It might be a, an episode. Uh, but if it persists, come and see me. And it did go away after day or two, it was gone, and I was very relieved. But then about a month later, it came back. And, you know, so what I ended up having for quite a while was this, what they call intermittent form of tinnitus, intermittent tinnitus, where you have it for um, sometimes a few days, and then it goes away again, it's completely gone, and it comes back again. <clears throat> And I remember talking to uh, someone at a tinnitus meeting, and they said, well, you know, th we know this, uh, this form is quite common, uh, but unfortunately, news is bad. It will, the intervals where your tinnitus is free will become less and less, and shorter and shorter, and this is exactly what happened. So not, right now, I'm at a stage where I almost have tinnitus all the time, except for some days. You know, some days I wake up in the morning, I'm completely refreshed and have no tinnitus whatsoever. And those are the days where I feel very happy and I feel very relieved. And I think, well, you know, maybe it will stay that way. But then often the next day or two days later, it sets in again and I have tinnitus again. So um, the short answer, yes, I have tinnitus now and almost constantly. And I think it's been actually a very good teacher for me. Um, I'm. As a scientist, I'm a good observer, I think. So I've been using my own experience to draw conclusions from it. But we'll get That's into that later. That's very interesting. Yeah, we will. That's very interesting. Um, were you already studying tinnitus uh, at the time when you got it? Or was it because you got it that you became interested in studying it? No, I already had been interested in it. <clears throat> um, I've, I've been work, doing work on neuroplasticity all my life, you know, how the brain can change uh, with different types of uh, environments or experiences. That was part of my doctoral thesis was the development of the visual system and how 
different specialized visual experiences can change the visual cortex and part of the brain. And then I became interested how people who are born with blindness uh, can cope and how their brain changes as a function of uh, their um, unusual experience. And so tinnitus to me was a form of plasticity as well, uh, a reorganization that happens if you um, lose hearing or, or have partial hearing loss. And um, that's still part of my concept, you know, that the um, some kind of injury to the nervous system has to precede this experience uh, of tinnitus, the perceptual changes. And uh, so that, that was my interest, and I'd actually written a, a review paper in Trends in Neuroscience, sort of high-profile high review uh, journal where I compared different forms of uh, plasticity in different sensory systems, visual, auditory, some of the sensory, and I compared tinnitus with uh, chronic pain, uh, or um, phantom pain in particular. And that's been a, com a comparison that other people have made as well. And I think it is important to understand that um, analogy. Again, something we can get into later. Definitely, yeah, we should. Um... So, and then maybe I should continue and sort of be more specific in answering your question. So when I okay. got tinnitus myself, of course, my interest became more intense. And I said to myself, you know, how can I use my knowledge that I had up to that point, you know, in, in uh, towards understanding my own um, affliction? And uh, and that often helps, as I said earlier. And and um, so I I think the experience of having it then influenced my getting into the field more directly and I got funding and so on, you know, this took off from there. Yeah, that's very interesting that you, you do. It's, it's not a purely academic interest. Uh, there's also a personal interest there. Yeah, yeah, of course. And that, that happens everywhere in every field of science. Uh, you know, I don't want to take too much time on that, but, but this is not unusual. I think that people uh, are interested in their own um, afflictions or disorders yeah. if they have any. Yeah. Indeed, uh, we did a uh, a survey last year amongst participants uh, to the TRI conference, Tinnitus Research Initiative conference. There were a lot of researchers present, and one of the things we asked them is, "Do you have tinnitus yourself?" I think forty percent had it, so that's much wow. higher than the general population. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's an interesting outcome. Um, so you started already talking a little bit about tinnitus mechanisms, how it works in the brain. I know your research has focused, amongst other things, on understanding the brain mechanisms of tinnitus. Can you explain to our listeners what is your current understanding of how tinnitus manifests itself in the brain? Yeah, so there are several levels of uh, involvement of the brain. And um, when I <clears throat> got serious with my tinnitus research, uh, after I, I uh, had developed it myself about, um, yeah, about 10, 15 years ago, um, I developed this theory which it was based on data you know it was not just a, a, a theory that I kind of uh, 
took out of thin air. You know, it was definitely based on studies that we then uh, did at that time, which we might have done anyway, you know, even without my getting tinnitus, you know, it was just the additional sort of impetus that came from there. But it was really a study that was funded by the Tinnitus Research Consortium at the time and then later by, by NIH, uh, where we kind of used that concept of, of tinnitus being a form of reorganization of the auditory cortex. Mm, and based on, on an injury that happens in the periphery. So there you have already two levels of involvement of the, the brain, the, the periphery of the auditory system, you might say, well, that's still receptor level, but you know, the auditory system uh, projects very quickly into the brainstem. So the cochlear nucleus is the first processing station, which is part of the brain. You know, it's just one synapse away from the cochlear and from the uh, hair cells that are the receptors. And so uh, they are certainly in, at the very early level, maybe an involvement because you haven't have damage to the hair cells or some other peripheral station of hearing and uh, something even as early as the brainstem, uh, the, the cochlear nucleus might change. And there is some evidence for that. But then, you know, we went a step further and said, well, you know, tinnitus is a conscious experience. So it probably involves uh, the level of the uh, cortex where, you know, conventionally people think our conscious experiences are uh, represented. And, and sure enough, this is the model that has been prevalent for some time now. And this is one of the models that I um, described in, the, in this 1999 uh, TINS paper, where we say, okay, so this input to the cortex changes because some of the brain uh, hair cells are are, are damaged, and um, the signal in in those frequencies. Let's say somebody who's older gets frequency hearing loss, so there will be less input coming to the auditory cortex from the cells from the hair cells in the periphery that represent higher frequencies. And that's the most common form of hearing loss. Then you know what happens to that part of the auditory cortex that no longer receives that input? Does it sort of die, or you know, is it it's deprived of this afferent input, or what happens? And the, the most common model, which comes partly from these uh, phantom pain uh, studies, is that these as we call them deafferented regions, as physiologists uh, actually require or, or stabilize input from the neighboring region. So they, they don't die, they, they are very much alive because the cortical cells are still there. And instead of receiving this high frequency input, they receive input now from the neighboring regions, which actually uh, expand into that vacated region. And that's how you get an overrepresentation of these border edge frequencies, as we call them. And, and this overrepresentation then leads to actually higher activation of these regions than would normally be the case. And this is in, in, in the view of myself and, and a lot of my colleagues, the uh, ultimate origin of the tinnitus signal. There may be, as I said, there may be more peripheral regions involved like the brainstem or the thalamus, but we think that the reorganization in the cortex is the decisive factor. So that's chapter number one, you could say. And I don't know if you want me to proceed with the other part, which is actually the more specific part of my theory, then we get to another part of the brain, which is, I think, very crucial. 
in tinnitus? Yeah, I think, um, I've, of course, I've watched your TED Talk on YouTube, and I would, by the way, encourage any listener uh, to this podcast to check it out because it gives in 15 minutes a very clear and su succinct uh, summary uh, of, of your theory. And there you also talk about the second part, which I think is the the gateway mechanism. Yes. Am I saying this correctly? <clears throat> yeah. Right. So, can yeah, please tell us more about that. Um, so, the, uh, what I what I'm saying there is that, um, and and you're right. The TED Talk they they really coached us to take uh, the short, you know, make this short and make it succinct. And it's a very interesting experience actually when you have to do these things in 15 minutes, where you normally talk about 45 minutes in these. In, in a, an ordinary academic seminar, you have usually much more time, but it's it's good to to be to be precise and sort of and and be short about this. So the let me let me first step back and and, and tell you what my own experience contributed to the understanding of that second part, um, and that is I noticed you know as I mentioned that I don't have tinnitus all the time you know sometimes it's completely gone and still gone every now and then and then I wonder you know what's actually going on you know it, it can't be that suddenly my hair cells in the inner ear have regenerated that quickly and and my input is normal uh, or my auditory cortex suddenly reorganizes back to where it was and the hyperactivity of the auditory cortex is gone and therefore my tinnitus is gone. That's almost impossible to, to believe. So I had the idea that maybe some other mechanism higher up might be important for switching this hyperactivity on and off or switching my perception of the hyperactivity on and off. And that's what we refer to as the gating mechanism, that there is a, a switch basically or a gate <clears throat> that can allow the tinnitus sensation to get through to my uh, conscious experience. And, and then in one of these studies, which actually was done in, in Europe, in, in Munich, in the collaboration that I had there, um, they had done um, a structural MRI study of tinnitus patients called voxel-based morphometry is the uh, technique that they used. And you can look at density of different parts of the brain, you know, it's a whole brain study uh, where you compare the brain of tinnitus patients with the brains of normal controls who don't have tinnitus. And uh, what the result was is that there was one region that stood out in that it had a markedly uh, smaller volume than uh, in normal controls. And that was a part of the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Uh, and we thought maybe into the ventral striatum or nucleus accumbens. So it's a part of the limbic system that was clearly uh, affected in tinnitus patients. And then you put two and two together. And, and I said to myself, well, maybe this is where the gating happens. If um, this region is broken in addition to the changes in the auditory system, then maybe this is what makes people aware of, of this hyperactivity. And if that kind of region uh, might be able to change on a daily basis, it might fluctuate. So if that gating activity um, changes, maybe my tinnitus will be gone. 
and if it you know changes back to where it was it might come back you know so th there's a, a variable there where, where the switch actually might happen uh, of where you become aware of these kinds of things or not and this might might extend to other sensations as well you know it might have to do with chronic pain or might have to do with depression and it's well known that people with tinnitus often have a a comorbidity of uh, depression, anxiety, you know, not everybody has that, but some people do. <clears throat> and, it, uh, you know, so we'll, we can get into that as, as a sort of a third thought uh, of, of all this. Uh, but uh, I think the gating idea is very important to my theory. And I'm still, you know, after 10 years, I'm still convinced that this is what happens. Okay, that's very interesting. And it would also explain why uh, not everyone with hearing loss has tinnitus, exactly. for instance. Exactly. That was the other <clears throat> observation that when I got into the tinnitus literature more in more detail, I realized that it's only about 30% of people with hearing loss end up getting tinnitus. And the explanation would be that their gating system is intact and a sort of a second line of defense, the brain, um, you know, holds off that that um, unpleasant sensation because, you know, you don't want to have tinnitus. And so the brain is actually really good at um, kind of uh, creating this uh, form of um, um, homo, um, homogeneity. Um, and it's, it's trying to, to even out um, unusual experiences, you know. So if you st suddenly hear a loud noise in your brain, then um, the uh, this kind of higher mechanism thinks, well, it's not usual there, so, uh, you know, we better turn the volume down. So this is kind of, in, in more lay terms, um, the, the idea, you know, that in, in people who don't right. develop tinnitus, that mechanism uh, works, and in people who do develop tinnitus, that mechanism is somehow uh, compromised. Indeed. So that would suggest that the brains of people with tinnitus are somehow significantly different from those without tinnitus. But I wonder, are those differences a cause or an effect? of? Yeah, tinnitus? yeah. This is now the, the debate, of course, that people have. And um, the idea that the limbic system is involved in tinnitus is not new, of course. Pavel Yastropov and others even before him have brought that up, and it has uh, to do with the observation that people um, who have tinnitus um, often are depressed about it, they have anxieties, and and the conventional explanation is, well, you know, this is called the reaction to the tinnitus. P because you have tinnitus, you get anxious, what else might happen, you get depressed about your situation. Uh, but our theory turns this around. This, I think, was my, was the the, the new thing about our theory is that we basically turn that down, turn that around 180 degrees and say, well, what if that gate, broken gating mechanism is actually the cause of our perception? It's not the cause of the tinnitus signal. That's, that happens in the auditory system. There's no denial of that. You know, I think everybody would agree that if you hear something unusual, it would have to come out of the auditory system. But, um, and that's, I think, well taken by 90% of the people in the community now. But what debate is, is whether, whether the limbic system involvement is the reaction to the tinnitus or whether it could be the cause. And what I'm saying is that it's uh, uh, definitely a, 
a very important cause. And, and, and so in science, it's often difficult to get through with an idea that has two causes. And in this case, you have a cause in the auditory system that generates the tinnitus signal, and you have a broken gating system, which normally keeps the tinnitus signal at bay. And, you know, people don't even notice that they have tinnitus. They might have it for a day or two after a rock concert. They might actually have tinnitus, but then the, the gating system uh, controls it out. It kind of turns the signal down, and then you never know that you have tinnitus. So your, your neurons might actually somewhere might fire and you don't even know about it because the gating system um, kindly keeps you healthy and keeps keeps the signal down. That's very interesting what you said about turning cause and effect around um, related to the whole sort of emotional response that people have to tinnitus because, and this is, I would say, a bit of a controversial issue also within the tinnitus community yeah. because people feel like they're being told tinnitus is their fault because they're reacting emotionally to the tinnitus sound and people have even been told by their doctors sometimes that the only reason their tinnitus persists is because of their own emotional yeah, reaction to it but you're saying it, it, it's, it's not it's really wrong. that simple no, it's not, not not that simple i mean that that uh, maybe that additional factor that you know it's kind of a vicious circle that that um, starts to take place you know once you have tinnitus you, you of course you get upset about it too and that kind of makes it even worse but i think the original cause and, this, and again this is the second cause i'm not denying that there is a tinnitus signal being generated somewhere in the auditory system i'm actually saying that you know but uh as a second um affliction uh, what tinnitus patients have is this uh, volume loss in the medial prefrontal cortex and the involvement actually which we can get into as well in detail of the nucleus accumbens which is part of the evaluation system uh, it's been called the, the pleasure center but we found and others are now uh, doing a lot of work that it's also re responsible for aversion so it's it's not just a pleasure but it's also aversion so if there's something wrong in there then you will suddenly put a lot more weight on things that are aversive, you know. So this is part of the, the gating system that the aversion, aversion of tinnitus then gets normally fed to the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex then is the one who turns down the signal. And that, that can't happen if there's a sort of a break in that, in that uh, gating loop. And what I want to add here is that <clears throat> the idea that um, Tinnitus is not, or the emotional uh, response, as you call it, is not a reaction to the tinnitus, but it's actually a causal thing, uh, came also from my own mm -hmm. observations. I noticed that whenever I had tinnitus, and, and this is why the intermittent form of tinnitus is so instructive, when I had tinnitus, I noticed that I was in a bad mood. And when I didn't have tinnitus, I was in a good mood. So, And, and I was absolutely certain that the bad mood didn't come from the tinnitus and the good mood didn't come from the absence of tinnitus. This was independent of that. So I woke up in the morning and was in a bad mood and I had tinnitus. You know, how can you say this was a, 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 a consequence of my tinnitus if I was asleep? You know, I was asleep, woke up and had tinnitus. And, and one day I wake up and have no tinnitus and I was in a good mood. So there was a, clearly a correlation between my mood and and the tinnitus signal. And 
and that's where I had the idea, maybe it's the other way around, maybe that system up there that is broken also controls my mood, and, 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 and you know, then the sleep comes in, of course. Uh, sleep can be the most beneficial um, thing for uh, or against tinnitus. If you sleep well, this is what I always tell my patients, try to get good sleep. This will regulate down your tinnitus. Absolutely, it's the best uh, best treatment, uh, together with relaxation in, 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 in general. Uh, so there is an effect on, uh, you know, from the limbic system down onto the perception of the tinnitus. There's absolutely no question about it in my mind. Mm. Perhaps we could explore a bit more this um, uh, sort of variability in, in tinnitus that, that some patients perceive actually my tinnitus is very very okay. constant it's just this con continuous high-pitched ringing uh, there's very little variation but i know a lot of tinnitus patients do experience uh fluctuations throughout the day mm -hmm. or the week or like you sometimes it's completely off or or very much on um is there anything known? There, there may be, I'm uh, sorry to interrupt, but there may be different what? forms. You I think it's one, one of the questions that you mm -hmm. sent me. Are there sub, subtypes mm. of tinnitus? And I totally agree with that. I think there is, uh, and I'm talking, you know, at the conferences, talking to other tinnitus patients, I hear the same thing, you know, where somebody says, well, I've had this since childhood, I had an injury, and, and it's been there since ever since, and doesn't fluctuate, doesn't change. This is maybe a different form of tinnitus, which has nothing to do with what I just talked about, you know, the emotional influences and so on. So, sorry to interrupt. Okay, I just yeah. wanted to add that in. No, no, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, that's a good addition. So, um, what factors do you think are involved in so when there is variation someone's tinnitus become either fluctuates a lot or it just become or it can also be that it gradually becomes worse or actually better over time what factors do you think are involved in that well <clears throat> with the gradual increase and that like i said that was predicted by by someone uh, who i talked to originally when I, when i started to have tinnitus that's something I don't understand. It may, may be just an aging issue. It may be, um, you know, why, why tinnitus can be progressive in these kinds of cases. Then that's kind of similar in other, in other disorders. Um, so that's, I think, separate from the question, why does it fluctuate? It, I think it fluctuates because... Um, um, well, let's let's bring it down to the receptor level or to the to the um, pharmacological level. Ultimately, this is, I think, what we need to understand: is that there are systems in this in this gating uh, in the limbic system and in the gating system in the nucleus accumbens. Uh, there are modulators like dopamine and serotonin, which are not well understood um, neuromodulators. So they're not part of the main transmitter systems like glutamate and GABA are the, the main excitatory inhibitory transmitters. But uh, dopamine is plays a role in a lot of different disorders. You know, the most famous one is Parkinson's disease. Um, and once it was discovered uh, that dopamine plays a role there, then we can also find treatments. 
uh, L-DOPA came out of um, studies in non-human primates that um, isolated dopamine as, as one of the um, responsible transmitters in Parkinson's. And since then, we've learned that dopamine is involved in a lot of other, uh, mainly neuropsychiatric disorders. Um, and, you know, so a lot of knowledge needs to be gained about these systems that do the modulation. And this is, I just bring that up because, because when we want to understand the modulation and the, the fluctuations of tinnitus, I think we really have to get down to that level. And also, if we want to ultimately find a cure, this is what we need, an understanding at that level. And this is what's been, um, I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead now, <laughs> uh, but this is what's been frustrating, uh, that I think people in funding agencies don't understand that, and they um, are keeping to their sort of old paradigms and are not willing to take the risk uh, to take that jump into uh, into another domain where we are, have a much better chance of of making huge progress in understanding the mechanisms of of this disorder right so we have to understand more about where fluctuations yeah. come from and that could also lead potentially to cure or treatment yes. i think it's crucial i think yeah. this is absolutely crucial hmm so can we delve a bit more into the subtyping issue? Because I'm wondering, does it uh, matter in your view at, at the level of the brain, what caused the tinnitus? So for instance, does it make sense to distinguish between noise-induced or non-noise-induced? Uh, there's also somatic yeah. and non-somatic tinnitus. So some people who have problems in their neck or jaw, that is, is a theory that that could either trigger or contribute somehow to the tinnitus, but do those things matter, you think? Uh, not in the sense what I just talked about in terms of um, modulation. Uh, and, and I may be wrong about this, but uh, those um, um, forms like somatic tinnitus, which is of course uh, a fact, you know, people can modulate their tinnitus with jaw movements or neck movements. Um, and some people go as far as saying this is the whole cause. I don't believe that. I don't think that this is the whole cause. I think it's one subtype. Um, and, uh, and I may be wrong, but th those people, I think, may be less prone to the fluctuations in terms of, uh, in terms of emotional comorbidity and so on. Um, so, but this is something we should look into, I think, you know, isolating different subtypes where we can uh, say, well, you know, like your tinnitus, as you said, um, is constant. You know, this may be a, a whole different ball game, and somatic tinnitus may be a whole different ball game. So, if we, um, you know, talk about those forms of tinnitus, we may not um, have a lot to say in terms of uh, emotional co-modulation, and we may not have such a good chance uh, actually in. In treating them, you know, there may have to be other treatments in in the sense that we have to really get to the um, uh, auditory system or the some of the sensory system in this case, um, and 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 fix what's what's broken there. But I think the the, the majority of cases are the ones and, and people where people suffer most 
are the ones where the emotional involvement is there. And, you know, this is where people get suicidal in, and want to kill themselves. They don't want to necessarily um, kill themselves because necessarily because of the tinnitus that is there when they move their jaws. You know, they have a problem in their nucleus accumbens and in their medial preformal cortex. You know, they have a form of depression. And uh, you know, often it's not, it's not a major depression. In some people it is. Uh, but in the majority of cases, it's mild depression. It's sort of a, a, a mood disorder that um, kind of gets to them. And uh, it's something uh, that can be understood. I think we have to be much more um, kind of um, biological about understanding these um, these mood disorders, you know, there's nothing really mysterious about them. It's something that we work on uh, on a daily basis. We ignore things and we, um, get, you know, if we were to think about our own situation that one day we're going to die and all of the diseases in the world, all the, all the suffering that we see, we might actually all be depressed. But we, the reason we are not is that we are ignoring these kinds of terrible things and are able to sort of uh, blend them out with our gating system. This is part of the function of that gating system that ignores a lot of bad things. And then if you're unable to ignore them, then you become depressed. And if you're unable to ignore or, or take out your tinnitus uh, perception, then you, you sort of uh, have that comorbidity, uh, you know, if, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do that, that. There's more to be said, but I'm, I'm, I don't want to avoid it. I'm starting to ramble here. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I, I am interested in exploring more the connection between tinnitus and mood disorders, depression, anxiety. We do see it a lot on the tinnitus talk support forum that where people um, deal with these comorbidities, many, many of them, um, would you say that people who experience uh, depression and anxiety before getting tinnitus are also more at risk of developing tinnitus? <clears throat> I think that would be the logical consequence. I don't have any data to support that, but it's, um, of course, what you would predict. I, I, I always, often get that question, you know, so how do you explain that somebody uh, suddenly gets tinnitus with a, you know, um, gunshot near, near their head, you know, how can you explain that with your gating theory? And my answer is usually, well, their gate has already been broken by that time, you know, so they can immediately see the onset of tinnitus because then the two causes are there. And so equally, I would, I would expect that somebody, you know, that's the answer basically to your question, that somebody who has a problem in their um, uh, medial prefrontal cortex, which is responsible also for the, for, for, the, for the depression. It's the same region that Helen Mayberg and others have identified, or Drovetz had, uh, in at NIH had an early study, a PET study, where he identified that same region that we found as a, as a causal involvement in tinnitus. Uh, in, in, as, a, as a cause for, for depression. So it's the same exact region. Um, so I would expect, yes, the answer to your question is yes, they should be at higher risk to have tinnitus when they get hearing loss. Yeah, that's very interesting. So you, in that example you mentioned of someone being 
being exposed to a loud sound, the sound is really just the trigger, but not the root cause of the tinnitus developing. Well, not, not quite. It's one of the causes, okay. you know. So, like, like I said, it's an like an and a logical and gate where you have to have two things happen, um, either at the same time or uh, in you know staggered in time. If you have hearing loss, you're at higher risk of getting tinnitus uh, because your gate might break and then you have tinnitus. Or if you um, have a broken gate, you know, so you're prone to, to depression, then if you get tinnitus, uh, get hearing loss, you will develop tinnitus more easily. You know, so both of these things have to happen either at the same time or one after another. I've met people uh, in after talks that I gave I uh, remember one one talk in Montreal, and somebody came up to me afterwards from the audience and said, "Well, I think you're right. My my brother died last year, and since then I've had tinnitus. You know." So I said, "Well, you know, you probably already had some hearing loss, but it didn't cause tinnitus. But the emotional breakdown that you had after your loss um, then probably uh, you know led to the tinnitus." And we hear that all the time that people go through divorces and suddenly they develop tinnitus and which means that they must have already had hearing loss but it was hearing loss that didn't lead to tinnitus because their emotional regulation was still intact uh, that's thank you for that clarification that helps um i really also want to get to your own current research but maybe one last question on on this topic um apart from depression, anxiety, what do you think is the role of stress and how does that, yeah. uh, uh, what's the pathology of that? There is, I heard something about glutamate in the brain, increasing the chances of tinnitus developing. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I was getting to the stress um, uh, earlier, but then I, I thought this is really a, another topic and I'm glad you, you bring that up. I, I think stress is a major risk factor for tinnitus. And um, we don't understand enough about the effects of stress on the brain, but there is, it's an active area of research. And um, I've been talking to people in that field because I'm hoping that this would be another avenue towards uh, solving the puzzle of, of tinnitus and, and maybe come up with a cure. If we understand how stress can damage our brains, and there's no question about that, that there's, uh, stress can damage your brain then we can maybe also, you know, tinnitus would be a, one symptom of that damage or, or sort of a, I wouldn't call it a side effect because it is a major effect, but it's uh, certainly one one of the consequences of stress. And, and I can see that uh, myself, you know, usually on weekends, my tinnitus is less than during the week when I have a lot of stress in my job and uh, or when I get little sleep. Um, and you know, sleep um, deprivation is a form of stress, of course. And uh, so, understanding how stress can actually affect your brain would be a major progress. And I think whether glutamate is is involved or not, I don't know. But there are definitely effects that have been measured on you know um, the the. the Stress can have degenerative effects. It can really kill cells, brain cells. And the, the question is the same as, as for tinnitus. Why are some people more prone to the effects of stress than others? So 
uh, in that field as in depression research. Um, the question now circulates about um, vulnerability uh, or um, uh, the, the opposite is uh, uh, resilience. You know, those two terms have now become very, very important terms in, in psychiatric, neuropsychiatric research. Why are some people getting depressed over uh, the loss of a, a, a family member or, or any other adverse uh, events in their lives and others are not? You know, others are sad for a while when something like this happens, but then they, you know, develop defense mechanisms and they, after some time of grieving, they get out of this phase and they can lead normal lives again. Whereas if somebody, uh, you know, the same effect, same event might affect somebody uh, very differently and they might get into deep depression and it might take them years to get out of this or, or never get out of this. And so I think it's the same kind of um, vulnerability or resilience, um, depending on your point of view, that is involved in in something like tinnitus, and tinnitus is actually it's just a small example of that. There's many, many more examples of this in in our whole, uh, you know, brain health, if you wish. I, I would love to delve into this further, but I, I do also want to touch on uh, your own current research. Um, but before we do that, was there anything else you wanted to bring up on the the topics we just discussed? Um, sure, I forgot uh, a lot of <laughs> important <laughs> details, but uh, people should feel free to, to contact me if they want to know more about it. And if they want to know details, I'd be happy to, to answer questions at some Great. point. Great. That's good to know. Um, so on your own research, can you sort of describe for the listeners what is the status quo of your research? What are you currently uh, working on with regard to tinnitus? Yeah, uh, there, there's thousands of things I would like to work on, and I think we could make progress in tinnitus. Unfortunately, the funding levels of um, um, funding agencies are frighteningly low. I don't think they understand the importance of that disorder and the, how widespread it is and how many people it affects. I'm always shocked how little, for example, the Department of Defense or the Department of Veteran Affairs here in the United States is doing. Their veterans are the group in society that is most affected by this. They all come back from these armed conflicts that the United States uh, uh, is partly responsible for in Iraq, Afghanistan. You know, there's lots of veterans come back and have uh, damaged ears, you know, not only hearing loss, but also tinnitus. Uh, the VA actually shows in their statistics that tinnitus is the biggest problem. And number two is hearing loss. And according to that, they should spend millions and millions and millions on funding research on these disorders, but they don't. It's very difficult to get funding. So, you know, having said that, <laughs> getting this out of the way. And I think it's a fact. You know, everybody in the field feels that way, that we're not getting noticed enough, that we're not taken seriously enough. And uh, people should complain about this because we can't pursue our ideas and we can't do the research that we need to do in order to find solutions and ultimately come to a cure. I think it is possible to get to that point. I, I, we have clear... 
objectives of what we want to do and we want to uh, do more so we can finally get to a cure of this disorder. Now, having said that, the, the highest priority that we give uh, is twofold. I think there's more imaging studies we can do in humans. Connectivity studies is what everybody is doing now. It's pretty actually easy to do, and we've done some, and others have done some. And uh, what this reveals is that there are connectivity changes between the auditory system and the limbic system. That's not so surprising after all we know and what I said. Uh, but there's a little more we can do. But I think the real breakthrough will come from animal models. Uh, I talked about the various transmitters, dopamine, serotonin, you mentioned glutamate, uh, GABA may also play, play a role. All these things can only be revealed in animal studies. You know, we can't drill uh, open a human skull and, and look for these transmitters. There's a little bit of uh, imaging we can do to identify transmitter systems, but the actual work has to be done in animal studies. And the only thing I've seen in my whole career is really these rodent studies that people do. And they are fighting over what paradigm is better than the other. I think the rodent is not sufficient in this, in this case. As I described from my own studies, and we, I think this is where everybody would agree, uh, there are higher brain structures involved. Whether you call them gating structures or something else, there's no question that um, the, the prefrontal cortex and the striatum are involved in tinnitus. And rodents don't have much of a prefrontal cortex. It's a cognitive disorder in our definition. So the, the, the little bit of cognition that rats have are not a good model for for these kind of higher human cognitive disorders like tinnitus uh, or depression. I'm, I think a paradigm shift has to happen where we use non-human primates for these studies because non-human primates are like us in that they um, have these gating systems where they uh, can use their prefrontal cortex as for executive uh, cognitive control of um, sensory perception, etc. So this is the other thing where we are trying to make progress is we have now um, a small number of um, non-human primates that we use for experimental purposes and <clears throat> approved protocols where we can um, initially, you know, we will induce tinnitus in these monkeys hearing loss like uh, it's done in the rodents. Um, but ultimately, I think we can even use non-human primates that are sitting around in colonies. There are colonies, human non-human primate centers in the United States and elsewhere where uh, the monkeys are used for other experimental purposes and they're getting old. In, and and uh, my colleague and friend Greg Reckenzone at one of these primate centers in California, UC Davis, uh, came to me one day and said, you know, I have all these geriatric monkeys and, and they are developing hearing loss, and I'm sure a lot of them have tinnitus too. And so we yeah. are planning a study that we are going to do together where we are getting at the uh, transmitter basis and the morphological basis of tinnitus in these monkeys. And I think this will be a whole line of research that, uh, that I personally find very, very promising because I think it will lead much further than these conventional behavioral uh, uh, rodent studies that have been 
done over and over again and don't really lead to anything. So this is uh, the study you just mentioned. Is That's the one you're currently fundraising for, right? Yes, it's, uh, that's what... exactly right. And this right. is this what... is especially difficult to, to get funding for that because some of the foundations that are funding tinnitus explicitly say that they're not funding non-human primate studies. And this is, ah. of course, because they're afraid of animal rights groups that might attack them, which is totally un. un base, you know, without base, you know, we have to be courageous enough to defend our research if it's done correctly and if it's approved by the animal care and use committees as we, as in our case, there are people, there are heroes out there in the field, you know, my colleague and friend, uh, Nikos Logothetis in Germany, who was a pioneer in doing functional imaging in, in monkeys, has been attacked, you know, by animal rights groups for years. He had to go to court and he won in court just a few months ago. The, the highest court in Germany uh, ruled that he was right and that uh, these animal rights groups have to shut up and uh, give up their resistance because it's important for our health uh, research to to use the correct species, in which in this case, in, in the case of tinnitus, is also um, a higher mammal. and. Uh, if you want to understand the basis of cognitive brain disorders, we have to use non-human primates. There's just no way around that. Yeah, I would personally agree, and I think many tinnitus sufferers would agree. Um, I know many tinnitus sufferers want a cure, but I don't think many of them have yet donated to your fundraiser. Maybe it would help if you could um, make more clear how this study could potentially contribute to the quest for a cure. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to get into that. And I'm, I'm glad you're, you're raising that sore point that uh, we need money uh -huh. for this. And um, um, yeah, I'm, like I said, the tinnitus in our view is a, is a cognitive uh, brain uh, disorder that, that needs specific treatment of a uh, brain region that is, um, for whatever reason, and this is uh, what we want to find out, is uh, damaged or that is um, underperforming, let's put it that way, uh, and is therefore unable to keep um, the tinnitus at bay. And, and I think if we are able to understand that mechanism, we are able to cure tinnitus. And in order to do that, we need to do, I think we would start with imaging of uh, non-human primate brains and uh, would ultimately study uh, monkeys that are naturally aging. Uh, and we are right now we are working on a diagnosis uh, behavioral study where we can diagnose tinnitus in monkeys. It, uh, it is partly based on these uh, startle paradigms that have been used in rodents and have been used uh, uh, in, in many, many studies in rodents. But uh, there are certain provisions that one has to take in, uh, in monkeys because they are higher cognitive animals. You, so we are basing our uh, startle responses on an eye blink response, um, which has been used in humans as a measurement technique. And so far, we are doing, we're making progress. We have one monkey that is successfully um, responding to this test. 
and uh, we were using aspirin in one of these studies to uh, induce temporary tinnitus. Again, something that has been done in rodents, but I think it's important to, as I said, to do this in a, in a primate. And then uh, ultimately, we will uh, research the transmitter systems in these animals and uh, find what's wrong in, in a geriatric monkey that is uh, naturally diagnosed uh, as having tinnitus. And, and then, you know, so step by step, we will get to the, to the causes of tinnitus and uh, we'll be able to hopefully reverse this. And once we have a diagnosis and we have a system how we can diagnose tinnitus at this level, uh, we will also be able to, to, to find a treatment and ultimately a cure. Right. So if you would successfully complete this study, what, what would be the next steps? Could there be clinical trials, for instance? Yes, of course. That would be the next, uh, sort of using Parkinson's as a model, a model system, as I've described earlier. This is, was the breakthrough. Once people had these results in non-human primates, they were able to do the same thing in, in humans. You know, then you start a clinical trial based on these experimental data in the, in the non-human primates, then you have justification for starting a clinical trial. And um, certainly there are, there are a few clinical trials out there. UCSF has one, uh, Steve Chung and his uh, co colleagues in neurosurgery have been doing a clinical trial partly based on our results where they do stimulation, deep brain stimulation of uh, the uh, striatum. And they've had some success. I talked to Steve just the other day and he said, yes, they're, they're enrolling more patients now and they are um, having encouraging signs. So deep brain stimulation is what I also mentioned in my TED talk. It's one of the promising techniques that is now uh, routinely used for the treatment of Parkinson's, for example, and um, now being used more and more for other cognitive brain disorders. So uh, not everybody will be a candidate for that, obviously. You know, we will start with... Uh, the most severe cases, people who um, are really, you know, desperate about their situation, they would be volunteers for these kinds of treatments. But then hopefully once we understand the system in more detail, uh, drug companies might become interested as well and might uh, help us develop um, drug treatment like as what happened in, in Parkinson's initially. And um, now when we talk to, to drug companies, we usually don't get much interest. This is a, a field that mm -hmm. has become notorious for most drug companies as something that is a, is a confused field and is, uh, where no good theories are, uh, are prevalent and therefore they, they don't want to invest. You know, drug companies want to make money. So they first need a, a good um, uh, foundation, a good, um, I think, basis for <clears throat> pharmacological work where they, they can enter and say, well, we will put some money into this clinical trial to see whether this drug might actually work or not. And I think this is what patients want to see ultimately is, is a, a pill that they can take. You know, It's not quite as easy, but, but ultimately I think they want drug treatment um, for, for this. They can, you know, like migraine, you know, often, there's this similarity being talked about between migraine and tinnitus. It's not exactly the same. It, it is actually quite different, but there are now migraine treatments that are, um, that are um, 
successful and that are promising. So I think we have to get to that stage where we develop some treatments that, that work, even if they're not perfect, but then ultimately maybe in 10 years down <clears throat> the road, we, we might then um, have the cure. I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful about this. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned a time frame because I was going to ask you, it, it, it all does sound very hopeful and promising, but also like still quite a long road yeah. ahead. I, I want to tell an anecdote, you know, when, when I started tinnitus research um, and the TRI was uh, founded um, by a very uh, generous donor. Um, the, the donor came to one of our first meetings and interviewed one of each each of us one one on one, and asked the crucial question: How do how long do you think it will take you to find a cure? And this was about uh, I think it was about ten years ago at a meeting, and I said, you know, I think it will take us at least five to 10 years. And he said, well, you're the only one who's honest with me. He, uh, others all, all, all told me, well, a couple of years and we'll have a cure. It's not that easy. And, 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 and even I underestimated that complexity yet. Hmm. When I said 10 years ago, 10 years, we already, the clock is up, you know, so time is up and we still haven't yeah. found a cure. So if I now say another 10 years, it might still be over optimistic, but we'll see. You know, I hope, I hope we'll get there sometime. Yeah, yeah, it, it's uh, it's speculative, um, but hopeful. So, on the topic of cures and treatments, there are currently new treatments actually coming out. One that's very much hyped, I would say, is within, at least within the tinnitus patient community, is this uh, concept of bimodal neuromodulation. What's your view on that as a potential treatment? Can you tell me what that is? I'm not up to ah. date on that. So it's, um, yeah, see if I can explain this well or not. <laughs> um, the idea is to combine an audio stimulus uh, through headphones uh, with uh, a stimulus to, um, well, if in one case it's the trigeminal nerve, so there's a company called Neuromod releasing a device that stimulates the trigeminal nerve through the tongue while at the same time playing some audio signals. And there's other research going on, I think Susan Shore, um, where uh, it's same concept, but they're stimulating, I think, the vagus nerve. Um, and the idea is that somehow this combination of uh, stimulating the auditory pathways through through two different channels could induce the, the right kind of neuroplasticity to, uh, and has shown promising results, uh, at least in reducing the tinnitus for, for many people. Mm. Well, if it reduces uh, the tinnitus for some people, then it's worth pursuing, I, I think. You know, I don't know much about this, so I, I'd rather abstain from <laughs> of course. voting yes or no on this. But it's uh, yeah. certainly not uh, anything that would test um, the gating theory that I'm advocating. Okay, yeah, that, that no. Okay, so you can't see how that sort of relates to your model of tinnitus. See, this is the other thing that I'm a little disappointed about in these last ten years. When we came out with our two neuron papers in in 2010 and 2011. 
uh, you know, they, they made a lot of uh, uh, noise. Everybody noticed these papers and everybody was excited about them, but nobody did anything about it. There's, there's some studies that picked up on that, I think, and, you know, certainly we continued our work, but people don't listen to each other in the field. Mm. Everybody does their own soup and everybody thinks they're right and everybody thinks uh, let's just continue the same way that we've continued doing in the last 50 years. And the fact that we're not making progress shows that we're on the wrong uh, pathway. You know, I think people should listen to each other more. And I would have thought that somebody would pick up and run with this, but it hasn't happened. And, uh, and maybe the same is true for these other approaches that people are making. And the bottom line, again, is that there's not enough funding. If we all had enough uh, money for our research, then we wouldn't have to compete and we would have to, uh, you know, sort of... Mm. Uh, if there was a whole institute for tinnitus research, let's say, with uh, tens of millions of dollars of support, then I think we would have a cure in five years, not even just 10 years. This this would be easy to do. But since the funding agencies have other priorities, yeah. then it doesn't happen. Uh, what do you think uh, the patient community could do to help out here? They should make more noise. You know, they should write to the to the uh, funding agencies, to NIH, and let them know, you know, that there's this obvious crosstalk between the deafness institute, between deafness and mental health. And, and there are these two institutes at NIH in the United States. I'm not talking about uh, Europe, Europe because I'm less familiar with the, the various agencies there. But, but uh, here, you know, everything gets done within the limits of one um, discipline, you know. so. Deafness has an institute, NIDCD, they do deafness research. And the Mental Health Institute does mental health uh, research. So I went to deafness and said, okay, let's get this funded. I got one grant from them. Um, but then when I asked to pursue this uh, more mental health related approach that comes out of my gating theory, they said, well, you know, that's the domain of the Mental Health Institute. So I went to the Mental Health Institute and said, you know, here I have a paradigm in tinnitus that works. And uh, can we get this funded? They said, no, no, tinnitus is the domain of the Deafness Institute. They have to fund this. So you get, uh, you know, get the runaround and nobody feels responsible for picking up on a new idea that is interdisciplinary. This is part of the problem that, that people are too narrow-minded and they do not... Uh, look beyond their, you know, coffee cups and uh, and do not easily cross boundaries. And I think it's even within the community, this is what happens, that people don't see far enough beyond their own horizons. And that's part of the problem why we don't make enough progress. Yeah, I, I do recognize that. Uh, I think we as patient community also have to put some real thought into how to overcome these these barriers. Yeah. I don't have any immediate answers, unfortunately. Um, but we, sh we should... I think it's that. great what you're doing, though, Hazel. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, I think the patient communities have a lot of responsibility here. And uh, I think if there was more noise coming from, from the patient communities, I think it can only help. Uh, because uh, part of the, part, you know, what, one reaction that I often get, you know, 
uh, right now here at my university, we're trying to, uh, neuroscience is very strong here and we are trying to set priorities. And I brought up tinnitus as, a, as an example disorder multiple times and they said, well, you know, it's not as important as uh, let's say Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, you know, you can't die from tinnitus, right? And I said, well, you can, if you get, commit suicide, then you can die from it. Yes. And, it, you know, so, but it's, it's always considered a minor uh, disorder that, that doesn't get the attention that it deserves. So I think if patients pointed out how they suffer and how they really are fed up with the lack of funding, I think that would really help get their attention. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I recognize that it's a big frustration, of course, in the tinnitus community, this lack of rec recognitions and the sense that the it's not being taken seriously enough. And as you said, like some people take their lives over tinnitus. So I think that's serious enough. Um, yeah. But uh, at the same time, you know, uh, being working as a volunteer for tinnitus hub, and we're always trying to get patients engaged and taking part in campaigns and it, it is also hard to mobilize the community itself so i think we're just we're gonna keep trying and and uh keep pushing but that's, i think that's um, part of the disorder even uh, that people you know get depressed about it and they yeah. you know the sign of depression is is the opposite of what you need you know you need revolts and not uh resigning over it you know people yeah. resign over it and say well that's how it is and this is actually what doctors tell them you know this is the common True. response of an ENT doctor when you go as a tinnitus patient True. they say well you just have to get used to it get over it you know this is it's okay you know it's not going to kill you isn't that what what you've been told uh, absolutely yeah that's what almost everyone uh, hears from their doctors and then um you know, not and 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 even when people are not able to sort of accept or resign to it, there's still, as I said, this kind of apathy of you know this yeah. lack of not being able to take. People like to complain, of course, on uh, of, on tonight's talk on the online yeah, forum, but not other, beyond. Especially. Yeah, to each other, but that doesn't achieve yeah. anything, right? No, so no. there's this sense of apathy that can be quite frustrating sometimes right. but but right. it's interesting to hear from you that that's maybe part of the condition itself as well that's uh, i'd never really thought of it that way but of course it makes total yeah, sense i just realized that myself you know this is maybe the, yeah. the part of the problem yeah 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 um so about awareness raising do you have any plans to try to raise more awareness because i think your ted talk for instance was a great move and I, I got nearly half a million views. So that's that's not nothing. Um, do you have any plans like that? Or is there anything that we could help you uh, in, mm. in, in that d department? Um, I don't think there's uh, um, another TikTok in the in the on the horizon. Although, you know, the, it was very well received and the organizers were, were extremely interested and and all that, um, but other venues like this might be appropriate. There are, I mean, the TRI is a good conference and uh, they do invite, as far as I know, they do invite um, lay people and, uh, and funding agencies. And there have been other conferences that I've been to where I 
had interactions with patients at least, and this is always very fruitful, I find, um, where the patients come to me and say, you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, this is exactly how we feel about, about uh, tinnitus and, and, you know, from our own experience. And of course, this is where my own experience comes in. And, uh, but, you know, to get this out and make it more public, it's, it's, a, it's a different job. I think if you want to try this and organize specific lectures, um, it might be a great idea. I, I don't have any specific suggestions how to, uh, how to tackle that. I mean, there's the AAAS meeting. There, there are broadly based meetings. Uh, AAA, are you familiar with AAAS? American no, Association actually. of Advancement no. of Science. It's basically the same organization that runs the journal Science. They have these um, lectures. Society for Neuroscience certainly has public lectures. Uh, once a year, so venues like this might be might be interesting in, in raising awareness. Um, and um, I think you're doing such a great job, you know, with, with your program. And um, I leave that domain up to you. Yeah, <laughs> to thanks. Find other organizations that that uh, team up with you and, um, and yeah, give us their ear. That's a good tip. We'll, we'll follow up on that one. Um, so uh, maybe to, to start to wrap up, uh, obviously your fundraising for the, uh, the animal study you described, uh, I would encourage any listener to check it out and uh, if they can donate. Um, can you tell us how you plan to keep uh, donors updated on your research progress along the way? Yeah, our philanthropy department, uh, Fiona, she was sitting right next to me here. She's um, um, certainly uh, planning to do that, uh, is kind of keep the donors updated on what happens. You know, we, we keep uh, books on what comes in and we also keep books on what goes out and what it's being used for. So um, right now, this is a fairly modest amount that is on the account. Uh, so once we haven't even started spending the money yet because it's um, we're waiting for for bigger donations. And um, I think every every dollar does count, of course. And um, we are writing grants to other agencies. Something will go out next week. In fact. Uh, one, um, the Healthy, Health, uh, Hearing Health Foundation uh, is definitely interested in tinnitus. And um, there are other foundations that I've been funded by before and which we'll go back to. I mean, if the expectation is to sort of write an annual report as one does for every other funding agencies, we, we can do that as well. And um, I have to say, you know, the non-human primate research is is not uh, is, is usually slow you know you only have a small number of animals available that you can work with you have to train them um, that's where the rat work is so much easier to do because you can uh, use hundreds of animals at a time which we can't in in our field but uh, I think once we have access to these primate centers uh, as we're planning to do and Maybe Greg Reckonzone is somebody you should also ask uh, to to interview at some point. Uh, he can mm -hmm. add, certainly add another angle. He's done uh, 
other work, you know, measuring auditory brainstem potentials in non-human primates, and he's very knowledgeable and very interested in tinnitus as well, and not 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 as explicitly visible in in the tinnitus field, but I think we need to bring other auditory researchers into the field, as well as, you know, uh, uh, people from the mood disorder field, you know, so I think we need to create a new field for ourselves, is really, then TRI was a, an attempt to do that, but I think we need to go further and need to, you know, maybe these fundraising uh, campaigns are, are a good way to do that, because we, we should not only bring patients to the table, which is important, of course, but we should also, uh, you know, bring this to the awareness of the agencies and, and see that there's a, there's a central problem there that we're trying to address. I think that's a great call of action to sort of, uh, and a good note to, to end on, uh, unless there was anything uh, remaining, Joseph, that you wanted to uh, convey well, I think we've covered uh, a lot of topics, uh, Hazel, and Indeed. Um, I can't think of anything right now. I, I will be happy, as I said at the beginning, to answer questions. And uh, I do get a lot of emails, especially after my, my TED talk. I, I got, uh, I, I should probably say thousands of emails, and they're still coming in. Uh, and I can't wow. answer every one of them, but I, I have a whole archive of these of these uh, emails, and uh, I'm trying to be as as diligent as possible in in answering specific questions. And I, I'm also certainly glad to get encouragement, you know, and see uh, from tinnitus sufferers that we're on the on the right track. Well, what we can do for you is sort of centralize uh, and collect questions for you and, and send them to you all at once so that you're not bombarded by emails. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Joseph, I would like to thank you so much for your time. This has been certainly very enlightening and uh, inspiring, I would say, for me personally and uh, I am, I'm sure for the listeners as well. And I also want to thank you for your passion and dedication to tinnitus research. Uh, it's very much appreciated by the patient community. Well, thank you for inviting me to do this. And tinnitus is certainly one of the most complex topics that I've been working on in, in my life, but uh, we're not going to give up. This is an important cause and we are hoping to bring this to a successful conclusion. Thank you very much. And there we go, everyone. A fantastic interview with Dr. Ross Checker from Hazel. I just want to thank Dr. Ross Checker again for giving us his time uh, in order to do this interview. I know he's a very busy guy. He's got a lot of stuff going on. And trust me, we are the last people that want to slow him down in his research. <laughs> so <laughs> I just want to thank him uh, again for, for being so generous with us. But that's about going to conclude it for this episode of Tinnitus Talk. But we got a lot of stuff coming in the future that we know you guys will enjoy. We have a lot of interviews, a lot of things that we're excited about to present to you. So please stay tuned. Please follow along and please join us on the next episode of Tinnitus Talk.